Today we are going to talk about the most famous battle in the history of Israel. It did not happen between two armies. It happened between two people, David and Goliath. Here's the thing that strikes me about this battle with David and Goliath. Very, very well known. Many people who really know very little about the Bible at least know the story of David and Goliath. A lot of times you hear at sporting events, this is a David and Goliath matchup. So it's often talked about. Very, very famous story. The thing is, is that David is either going to look awesome or awful. And the distance of time between him finding out whether he's going to look awful or awesome is very short, like about 10 seconds or less. This battle isn't going to take long. And the thing is, is that, you know, sometimes that's our life. Like, we're going to know right away whether whatever Goliath, whatever thing it is that we've been praying for, hoping for, looking for, and it's going to happen really quick. And those are actually, I kind of enjoy those sometimes. It's the long, drawn-out ones that are really difficult, aren't they? So David had a long, drawn-out one as well because he was anointed as king of as Israel when he was just a teenager, and he waited for the next 15 years. It took him a really long time to figure that out. And so I want to talk a little bit about that tonight and what we can do as we're waiting, as we're fighting our Goliath, so we can figure out, is God in this thing, or how do I do And I want to use that story and our story of being here in this space this church used to be called, this facility here used to be called First Baptist Church of Boston. It no longer exists. We have been here 11 years now. Uh, about 11 years ago, right now, right about this time, um, I remember distinctly because it was right before September 11th took place because I was in the office that day. I'll never forget that day because I didn't have any access. I didn't have internet, nothing. I got a phone call on my cell phone, so there's a problem. And that's... but. We got a phone call uh, from the pastor of this church. This church is about 20, 25 people, mainly senior citizens that were here at this church. I really didn't know Pastor Joe Edmonds that well, but he called and he, uh, he said, Hey, I heard that you're a part of a, a new church start. Do you need an office? Well, at the time, there was only one staff member at Grace, and that was me, and the office was my basement. And so I said, Yes. And he said, I'll give it to you for free. And I said, Yes. That is awesome. The price is right. The location is fantastic. Everything works beautiful. So I got a little folding table, and I got a metal folding chair, and I had my cell phone, and that's what the office looked like back in the real early days. And things kind of developed from there. As, as, as Grace grew with staff members, and First Baptist Bolson had no staff members. When I first came here, they had a part-time secretary, but that didn't last. Um, we did all the First Baptists. We did everything, all their administrative work. We did all their bulletins. We did their newsletters. Uh, anything and everything, we did it. Their lease agreements, we did all that stuff. And the church didn't know it. The only person who knew it was Pastor Joe. They just assumed that Pastor Joe, who didn't know how to turn on a computer, was actually doing all this stuff. So, you know, we, we did that. But uh, along this journey, and I remember this. Here's the first thing you need to know, is that early in that journey, I, I remember just a few people saying, you know, maybe at some point, we kind of feel like at some point that... God's going to allow grace to have more freedom in this facility because there was different. There were schools here and there was other churches here and there was all kinds of stuff that was going on here. There would be more freedom. And that sounds all well and good. But the journey of that in comparison to King David and becoming king, there's some similarities there because King David is anointed king. Between him being anointed king and him becoming king, like King Saul was after him, hunting him down, and saying all kinds, well, we were being, we were a lot of times being squeezed out of this place because we were really treated as the unwanted, unwelcome stepchild in the basement. For so long, we had times where um, 
you know, they, they, people, whoever was in charge, there was different regimes in charge of this in the 11-year history, but, uh, you know, you need to get out of the office or you need to get, take your stuff out of half of the office and we're going to make you share office space or you just need to look for new office space. We had one time when they said, don't ever step foot in the sanctuary again. We went through a lot of stuff is what I'm trying to say. And this building went through lots of drama. People want this. Uh, facility, right? It's a $10 million facility if you count this space and the parking lot across, all this kind of stuff. Um, there was one very nasty, hostile takeover attempt that failed, but came really close to making it. There was at least one non-hostile takeover attempt. There, this place suffered four different fires. I tell people that this facility is like Moses floating down the Nile River surrounded by crocodiles. That's what it kind of was like, and we have been there in the midst of all that. And, you know, for sometimes we felt welcome and sometimes we felt unwelcomed and sometimes we looked for spaces and sometimes we just let it go. But I want to talk about that story and David's story and maybe make it relate a little bit to your own story. What are your Goliaths? What, what is it that you face? For some of us, our Goliath is a house. We want a house and we can't seem to get one. And we're praying, God, are you going to give me a house? For some of us, it's not a house, it's a spouse. Lord, is there a spouse for me somewhere? For some of us, it's a job. For some of us, it's healing. For some of us, it's a big breakthrough. For some of us, it's respect. Some of us, it's a healed marriage. There are a lot of different Goliaths, and they come in many shapes and sizes and forms, but it seems like we all have them. And we go through periods of times we don't have them, okay? But they always seem to lurk around the corner. Here's the thing that gets me. I fear this. Like if I'm David, right? So we all know that David eventually fights Goliath, and it was against all odds. There's no way he can beat this giant. Little David, you know, Goliath's, you know, nine feet nine. David is like four feet nine. You know, he's a little tiny fellow, right? How is he going to, how is he going to, and here's the thing that fears me. If I'm David and I go out to fight this battle, thinking I run down there, I fight, and I lose. Let's just say I lose, all right? Work with me. I lose the battle. I go to heaven. I look, I said, God, I mean, come on. I thought we were in this thing together. The battle is the Lord's, and I was going to triumph. And I'm afraid that God would say to me, hey, John, you know, the whole time when you're running to the battlefield, I'm like up there waving, go back. I am not in this with you. I never told you. Do you ever think that? Do you ever think when you're trying to get the house or the spouse or the respect or the job, do you ever stop when it's a long time away and think, Maybe God's not in this. Is God just up there shaking his head? And I'm like, oh, God, give it to me. And God's like, no, I'm not going to give it to you because it's not my will. You ever think that? I want to go through a filtering process tonight a little bit through this story. And how do we figure out what God is in and what God maybe is not in? And draw some principles from this story this evening. All right, before we do that, let's just uh, pause and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, you know, we're here tonight and many of us are facing a Goliath this very night. It's a house, it's a spouse, it's healing, it's a broken marriage, it's respect, it's a big break, it's something, God, something that hurts us, something that we want, something that we desire. We've been praying about it a long time and it's like a big giant and it's standing in front of us. And for some of us, even as we begin to talk about this, we're starting to feel that blood pressure rise and that emotional roller coaster and thoughts race through our hearts and our minds. God, be with us this evening. Speak to us through your word and help us. As God, we know we need your help. Ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to set the scene for you, if I can, real briefly, as we get into 1 Samuel chapter 16. Here's the scene King Saul, first king of Israel, 
all right? The entire nation of Israel drifting and drifting extremely badly. They're not even lukewarm. They're just cold. King Saul is rebellious against God. He is not the spiritual leader that Samuel, the last judge, the last great judge of Israel, had hoped. Samuel is very old, and his days are numbered on earth. And he's looking, who is going to lead this great nation? Who is going to stand up and lead the Israelites? Who is going to do this? And he's looking around. You know, Saul can't do it. He's already failed. Well, Samuel has two sons. He's told his two sons who also stepped into a position of spiritual leadership. Maybe they'll do it. But you know what the problem was? The scripture tells us that his two sons were both corrupt as well. So when God rejects Saul and Samuel knows this, he's like, there's nobody else that can do the job. He runs through his memory banks in his mind. He checks all of his records. He says, there is not one, listen, there's not one person that Samuel can think of that could fill that position. Here's the first thing I'd like you to write down on the back of your outline, all right, is this. Remember God is bigger than you. Really important to remember that God is bigger than you. Let's catch up with Samuel 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? So he's mourning. He's upset. He's depressed. And so God says, Why are you mourning this situation? Here's what I want you to do instead, Samuel. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be the king. Now look, Samuel didn't even know who Jesse was. He had to, he's Jesse of Bethlehem. And I've chosen one of his sons. He didn't know his sons were. He didn't know who Jesse was. Here's the God knows, this is really important, God knows more people than you do. God knows more people than you do. So when you're fighting your Goliath, you wonder, there's no hope, there's no answers, nothing out there. God is bigger than you are, he sees more than you see, and he knows more people than you actually know. Look what God says in Isaiah chapter 50, verse number 2. God's speaking to the Israelites who are going through a tough time. He says, have I lost my power to rescue and save? God says, at my command, oceans and rivers turn into deserts. Look what it says in Isaiah 59, verse number 1. It says, the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. God is saying, I'm bigger than you. I haven't lost my power. I know more people than you. I can handle the situation. Have you ever said that to yourself before? Look, there's, there's no hope. There's actually, there's not a house in northern Virginia that I could ever afford to buy. It does not exist. I went through that. Many years ago, I've only lived in Arlington County all my life. When we went to buy a house, we looked, we fasted, we prayed, long time, year, 18 months, going up all the way out in Manassas, the other side of Manassas. This is a long time ago. That's Manassas, like the boondocks. And we're just looking, and we finally said, this is, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. You know what God said? God said one day, he says, you know, I'm a little bit bigger than you, and I actually know more properties than you do. <laughs> and God, through a miraculous set of events, now it took years to do this, but so, you ever felt that way about a spouse? Anybody? There are no single... Did you know there's no single women in the city of Washington, D.C.? There's not, there's not one single woman. And there's not any single men either. It's an amazing thing. There's no single men. There's no single women. All the good single women, don't, they're gone. And there's not a qualified spiritual single male that exists, right? You ever heard anybody say that? Anybody? Here's, here's what God says. He knows more people than you do. There's a David out there. You just don't know it. So the first thing doesn't really help you with filtering this thing out, but I want you to know this right from the get-go. God is bigger than you. He knows more people than you. And you have to remember that. You have to remember that. God is very big. Don't ever 
forget that. So, in this situation that we are in here at First Baptist Boston, you know, when people said, okay, I think that there'll be a time that maybe you'll have more freedom here, and we begin to get squeezed out, squeezed out, squeezed out, don't step foot in the sanctuary and give up your office space. You know, I'd love to, I'd love to tell you that the reason we stayed is, is because we just believed in a great big God. I'd love to tell you that reason. But actually the reason we stayed is we couldn't find anywhere else to go. Just couldn't find anywhere else to go. If, if, if God is really big to us, if we like see God like David saw God, it's going to help us when we're fighting our Goliaths. So that's the first thing. Here's the second thing to remember. We need to see what God sees. David sees something different from what everybody else sees, and this is what is really amazing about this. And God presses this point. So what we have is here, Samuel goes to Bethlehem, the city where Jesus Christ was born. And he meets Jesse. He says, Jesse, I want you to bring all your sons before me. And the first son that he brings before him, his name is Eliab. And Samuel looks at Eliab and he says, my goodness, this guy is presidential. This guy is the picture of a king. He's got to be it. And then God says to him in verse number 7 of chapter 16, he says this. The Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Then here's the part I want you to really see. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward. In other words, man looks at the surface appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God looks underneath. He looks underneath the surface. Wouldn't it be absolutely awesome to have eyes to see that go beneath the surface? Like next time you're in a business dealing or something like that, you're entering into a relationship, somehow business, whatever, that's a big... Wouldn't it be cool to like to see the heart of the other person that you're actually dealing with or a personal relationship with somebody or a romantic relationship with somebody? Wouldn't it be awesome? I remember that uh, years, 18 years ago, actually, when my son was first born, uh, we had to get a minivan. Had to get it. You know why we had to get it? Everybody else that has kids have a minivan, so we had to get a minivan. We had to get one. I was, we went around to all these places looking, 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 and finally we decided we were going to lease a minivan. And I remember sitting in there and, you know... Flat out lied to me. The salesperson just flat out lied to me. And I remember thinking after that whole thing was over, and you know what clouded me because I just wanted the minivan so bad, I just believed what he was saying, right? Wouldn't it be cool if I could see into his heart at that moment? That would have saved me a lot of heartache. Saved me a lot of heartache. Here's the really cool thing, everybody. I want you to know this. God wants you to see below the surface. He actually wants us to ask him, will you show me what's below the surface? In the book of 2 Kings, there is a really cool story. Chapter 6, verse number 17. I'm going to read you the verse in just a second. Let me give you the lead into the story. There's a prophet. His name is Elisha. There was Elijah, then there was Elisha. And Elisha was on the hit list of of a king of another nation. And the reason he was is because he kept telling the king of Israel everything this other country was doing when they were coming to warfare against him. And he just drove this other king crazy. The king said, I, I, whatever you got to do, send the entire army. Get that one first. Just, that's all you. So he sends his entire army to go get Elisha. And so Elisha's servant wakes up one morning and he goes outside to get water or whatever he's doing. He looks and here's an entire army camp and they're there for one purpose, to kill Elisha. And I'm sure they're going to kill his servant while they're there. You know, might as well. It uh, doesn't take long to kill one person. Might as well kill another. And so the servant's thinking, it's over. We're dead. He comes back and he says, Elisha, you got a whole army out there. Uh, and, it, and look what Elisha does. Check this out. This is awesome. It says, then he prayed, meaning Elisha. He says, Lord, please help him to see. It's very simple. 
Lord, please help him to see. And the Lord let the servant see that the hill was covered with fiery horses and flaming chariots all around Elisha. But the reality is, is that for many of us in our Goliath situations, is that God is working. There's fiery chariots around us, and God is at work overtime in doing major battle for us against our God. But we just can't see it. So when, you know, they wrote us, you know, different people, hey, you can't be in the sanctuary and you've got to get out of the office. My reaction, because my eyesight only saw the surface, was, hey, how can you disrespect us like this? I immediately got angry. I was very upset. But if I could have seen below the surface to see that God was at work, it would have changed everything for me. And God wants us to have that kind of vision. You see that at different places in the Bible. Acts chapter 7, verse 55. Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church. Right before he dies, people are so mad at him because he's a follower of Jesus Christ. And they're so mad at him. Right before he dies, he says he looks up to heaven, and he's the only one that sees this. He sees Jesus Christ, and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He had these eyes to see something. That's an amazing ability. Some people have a natural ability to do that, and it's awesome when they do. I remember I was at a conference one time. I was listening to a story about Sam Walton. Sam Walton, this is after he had died, shortly after he had died, and his COO or CFO was one of those, one of his right-hand man, was telling a story about Sam Walton and talking about his vision. He said their habit was, and they did this on a normal basis, they would fly around the country, and unbeknownst to their competitors, they would go into their stores, their competitors' stores, and they made a deal. One would walk around the store this way, and one would go the other, and they'd meet outside, they'd compare notes. What did you like? What didn't you like? Blah, blah, blah. Well, they went to a store one day, somewhere in the Midwest, went to the store. The store was terrible. So the guy says he makes his trip, he comes out, and uh, Sam comes out a little bit later than he does, and Sam says to him, what would you think? And the guy says, the store was a disaster. There's nothing we can learn from it. It's trash. Let's get out of here. Let's move on. And Sam Walton looks at him and says, did you see the pantyhose rack? That pantyhose rack was absolutely awesome. Find out the manufacturer and fill our stores with the pantyhose rack. And then, this, then the guy said this. is He had the ability to see what other people did not see. Now, that can lead to greatness, but it can also lead to a lot of peace in our lives. A lot of peace in our lives. And help us when we're fighting our Goliaths. God wants to give us that ability. He really does. He wants us just to, like Elisha, God, let me see what you can see. I want to see below the surface. And I want to encourage you with all my heart to really pray that God would help you see below the surface and what God is doing. Third point is this. This is a write-in point. Um, I was um, flying back on the plane last night. I was on vacation and flying back. And this point hit me. And I ha- did not include on the outline. So just a quick write-in, if you will. Stick to the plan. That's the point. Stick to the plan. What do we do while we're waiting for victory? Right? So David, right? he's anointed king, and then he's got this long gap before he actually becomes the king. What does he do in the meantime? So should he go out and get a crown and put a robe on himself and start strutting around his house and telling everybody to obey him? Is that, should he just start barking orders? Is that what he, he doesn't do that at all. And some of you are wondering, okay, I'm waiting on my house, and I'm waiting on my spouse, and I'm waiting on my big break, and I'm waiting on whatever it is that you're waiting on. What do I do in the meantime? What exactly do I do in the meantime? Well, I think we can learn a lot from David because you know what he did in the meantime? He didn't put on the robe and the crown. You know what he did? He went straight back to the sheep. Right? You read in the scripture, it's amazing. You're the new king. Okay, so you go out and take care of those sheep. That's what he did. You know why? Because he's gifted as a shepherd. It's clear from scripture that he had a gift being a shepherd. He's very good at it. 
know. And then later on, we're told that King Saul, um, he was like suffering. He was in midlife deal, and I don't know if his testosterone levels were dropping or something was going on, but he had like irritable male syndrome. Does anybody know a man that suffers with irritable? Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Any other women know a man with irritable male syndrome? You're the only one. Okay. Guys, we have some dishonest women in the room. Okay. Uh, he's like suffering from irritable male syndrome. And they said, you know what? This guy needs help. We need like this. Bring a musician in. Maybe he can sing or something and calm this guy down because he's an absolute wreck and he's irritating everybody. And so somebody said, I heard this kid singing down the road. This shepherd kid, his name is David. He plays a harp and he's a really good singer. David was gifted as a musician. And this is what we're told in the scripture is that David went back and forth between King Saul, singing for King Saul to calm him down, right? And shepherding the sheep. Those are his two gifts. He had a third gift. The boy was a flat-out fighter. Like, if the UFC existed back in his day, he would be the champion of it because he came out of the womb fighting. When he fought Goliath the first time, it wasn't the first time he took something down. The boy had been fighting since the day he was born. He'd taken down lions and bears and everything else. He was just an excellent fighter. So you know what he did? You know what in the meantime he did when he was anointed king before he became king? He just kept developing his natural gifts, his God-given spiritual gifts. You have them. God has given you at least one predominant spiritual gift. And while you're waiting on your Goliath to come falling down, you must develop your gift and use it to the glory of God. You've got to do that. You do that in all kinds of ways. You can do it in the church. You can do it in your job. It doesn't matter. You just use your gift. Wherever God lands you, develop your gift and use your gift for God's glory. And then develop yourself as a person. This is what he did. He grew up. You think he was ready to be king of Israel at the age of 15? He wasn't. He had some maturing to do. We all have to develop our gifts and we have to develop as people. We have to do that. So, case in point, think about this. So, you really want a house, right? You really, really want a house and you're praying for God. Oh, God, just land me. Give me a house. But there's a problem. You know, you're in credit card debt, like big-time credit card debt. What do you think God's Word says about big-time credit card debt? God says, cut up the credit cards and get your financial house in order, right? This is very practical. It's all, money is all over the place in God's Word about how to live and not be debt. How about this? You really want a spouse. Oh, God, can you poof? Can you just give me this incredible spouse? God and everybody else are looking at you saying, you know, your interpersonal skills, I don't know how else to say it, they really stink, right? So if you just, like, work on that a little bit, to get help us out. Like, I'd love to poof, give you the spouse, but, ah, I mean, even the perfect, you get, you're, am I making sense? There are things that we can do. What do you do? You stick with the plan. You develop your gifts, and you use your gifts for God's glory. And if you don't know what they are, you've got to find out what they are. You've got to find out how God's gifted you. And then you've got, to, you've got to just keep developing yourself, keep growing yourself. And this is exactly what David does in the meantime while he is waiting. All right. Fourth one is this. Ignore the ignorant and seek the tried and true. You are, when you're fighting a Goliath, when you're up against some monster in your life, I am telling you, man, that is the time. It's like somebody blast a horn somewhere and say, send all the crazy people to you just to start talking in your ear and saying stuff that does nothing but irritates you or leads you astray. It just happens, and it happens to David. And you know what you've got to do? You've got to ignore the ignorant, and you've got to seek out the advice of the tried and the true. So let's go to the videotape here, and let's read what it says. Chapter 17, verses 28 to 31. Let me give you uh, just some background, then we're going to read the verse starting in 28. So here we go. David goes. His father says, go check on your brothers in the Israeli army. Go check on them. See how it's going for them. He goes there, and he finds out that this Goliath, right, 
He's been challenging the army of Israel for 40 days. He's done this. This often happens in armies in the Middle East. They would go mano y mano. They'd have one guy stand up and say, I'll take on your best man. Whoever wins, then their army wins. And they would do this. And this is what's going on right here. But this guy did it for 40 days. And he was such a bad, you know, guy. Nobody, nobody wanted to step out there, which really amazes me, everybody. you got to tell me there's not one knuckle-headed, testosterone-filled man, young guy, standing up on a hillside. And says, I'll give it a go. Right, I mean, come on. But nobody does it because that's how bad this guy is, Goliath. And so David shows up and he's like, what are you doing? This guy's defying the armies of Israel. Why hasn't somebody fought him? And somebody says, well, you know, everybody's afraid of him. And, but, you know, here's the good news. The king says anybody who can beat Goliath, no taxes. The whole family doesn't have to pay taxes. That's pretty cool. Right? No taxes. Hear me a second thing you get. You're going to get the king's daughter in marriage. Now, we're not sure if that's a good thing or that's a bad thing. Because we read about her later. She had a few issues. She had her own interpersonal things going on. But nonetheless, this is what you get. Who is going to go fight? And nobody's done it. For, this is the 41st day. Right? This is day number 41. Goliath's out. He's making his challenge again. So David walks up. And he's like, well, who's going to do something? Eliab, his oldest brother, hears him say this. Here's his response. Verse 28, Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men. He burned with anger at him, meaning David, and asked, why have you come down here and with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? Do you notice the contempt in those words? Who did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are, how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. And David says, now what have I done? David asked, I can't even speak. Here's the part I like. He then turned away to someone else. You know what I want to encourage you to do? You're going to have a lot of ignorant people come along your way and you're fighting Goliath. What you need to do, turn your back and walk away. Don't engage in conversation. Don't defend yourself. Don't get in a long, drawn-out affair, all right? Just turn around, walk away. You're going to, you know, you can battle people all day long. They don't know what's going on with your life. Their own deal isn't tried and true. This is, you've got to seek out tried and true people. Look, David can either listen to Eliab, this jealous, filled, older brother that he has, who, you know Eliab is just sick with envy because David was anointed king and Eliab wasn't. All right? So all he had was bad intentions for David. So he can either listen to Eliab or he can listen to Samuel. Now, who is Samuel? Samuel is tried and true. Samuel has lived a godly, wise life for decades, and everybody knew that. His house was in order. What he did was solid. Far too often, we listen to people who we don't really know that well. We don't really know them that well, and they come along and give us advice. Well, I see you carrying your Bible, and I see you going to church, so gosh, you must have great advice for me. Do they? How well? Before you take important advice from somebody, consider how solid their life is. Do they live a wise life? Is their own house in order? Really important because you're going to have a lot of other people come and try to get, you know, your ear and say things to you. You have to seek out the tried and the true. All right, number five, you have to do God's work God's way. So, Saul hears that King David, or not King, he hears that David, not King yet, is willing to fight. We've got somebody who's willing to fight. Well, they bring him in. He's a little short, but we're going to give it a go anyway. So after David talks Saul into letting him give it a go, here's what King Saul does. It's in verse number 38 of chapter 17. 
This is what it says. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. There's something you need to know, first of all. King Saul is a 52 long and David is a 36 regular. All right? Saul is six foot six. David is five foot six. So then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of iron on him and a bronze helmet on his head. And David fastened on his sword over his tunic. And then he tries to walk around in this because he was not used to them. He says, I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, and put them in his pouch with his shepherd's bag. And he gets his sling and all that kind of takes his slingshot. Here's what I want you to think about right here. You have to be genuine. You have to be yourself. You can't compromise when you're good. The end does not justify the means. You have to do God's work God's way. This is really important. David is saying to Saul, look, I can't all of a sudden turn into you. I can't be somebody else. I've got to be me. I've got to be me. And who I am right now, to be honest and genuine, is I work with a slingshot, not this massive sword. That's what I work with. I have to be who I am. Abraham. God comes along to Abraham and says, Abraham, you are going to be the father of many children. Sand on the seashore, stars in the sky, you're going to have a ton of kids. Now, the man, 75 years old, doesn't have one kid. So he knows it's God's will for having kids. We are, so we got that. That part's down. How is he going to get them? There's God's way and there's a wrong way to get the kids. He chooses the wrong way. So his wife, Sarah, comes along. And in Abraham's day, the natural thing for a man of his stature, a very wealthy guy, was he either takes another wife, he takes a concubine, or he takes his wife's maid. So she comes along. Sarah says, look, I got my maid here. Her name is Hagar. Why don't you just have a bunch of kids with her? And for some reason, Abraham puts up no fight. I don't know why, why reason. But anyway, he puts no fight up to this. He says, okay, do it. And we've had warfare in the Middle East ever since that point, haven't we? Here's the thing. It was God's will for him to have kids. It just wasn't God's way. And there is the rub. There's a way for us to go about getting a house. And there's a way for us to go about getting a spouse. That's God's way. And that is the wrong way. When we uh, were approached about five or six years ago by another church, church, fairly good-sized facility, seated about 500 people, and they only had about 20, 25 people there, and they approached us and said, would you be willing to merge with us? And we said, well, we, we would be willing to pray about it. And so we thought about it, prayed about it. Grace at that time had about 300 people in the church or so. And so um, we thought, well, if we merge with them, it's going to radically change that church. And that church was made up of senior citizens. All of a sudden, uh, a lot of things in that church are going to change. The name's going to change. The style's going to change. All kinds of stuff's going to change. And I don't know if you know this or if you've ever been to a kind of an old-fashioned church. They don't handle change well. Do you know what I mean? So uh, we thought, this is what we need to do. We need to go in. We need to sit down with them. We need to tell them how things are going to radically change. You know what some people said to me? I had people come to me and said, John, don't you dare do that. Go in there, just tell them, look, it's wonderful, great, let's merge. Once you get control of that property and control of that place, then you just change everything. There's not a thing they can do about it because you've got the power. Now, God's work, God's way. Is that God's way of doing things? So we decided we're going to go in and we're going to tell them that, you know, we love you, we care for you, and we respect you, but this whole place is going to radically change. All of a sudden, man, you're going to have kids running around this place, and this is going to be chaos everywhere. It's going to be wonderful. Name's going to change. Style's going to change. Everything's going to change. And they said, thank you very much. Please get out of this place right now. Okay? But there's a way 
look, just because everybody else is getting a house that way and everybody else is getting a spouse that way and everybody else is doing that with their taxes or whatever it is challenge you're facing doesn't mean that that's God's way of doing things. And the temptation when you're in the midst of a battle, something that you really want and something you've been waiting for, the temptation is to compromise and to not do things God's way. And you have to remain true just like David did. He remained true. He says, I'm not going to put on that armor. All right, final point is this, number six. Against all odds, you've got to give it to God. You've got to give it to God, give it to God, give it to God over and over and over again. I want to read you verses 41 to 47. I love this part. It's my favorite part of the entire story. We'll first start with Goliath the Philistine and what he has to say to David. He says, he says this in verse number 41. It says, Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bare in front of him kept coming closer to David. And notice this. He looked at David. He looked David over and saw he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. Now, I don't know if Goliath is like really ugly and he couldn't stand the fact that David was handsome. Something's going on here, but he absolutely despised him for some reason. He said to David, Am I a dog? Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. He said, come here, come here, boy. He said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. He wasn't even carrying a sword. And I'm going to cut your head off. Today I'll give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beast of the earth. And the whole world is going to know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. The bigger the fight, the greater the stress. This is a very stressful moment for David. The bigger the fight, the greater the stress, and the stress is great, we tend to take things on ourselves. Right? So the only way I know to give the battle to God is to actually pray it to God. So I just have to pray over and over again. And this is why I think that the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, he says, pray without ceasing. You know why? Why is Paul saying pray without ceasing? Because Paul is a type A high achiever. Does anybody know any type A high achievers in Washington, D.C.? Anybody? One person back there knows a type A. Another person. Thank you very much. Type A high achievers. And what type A high achievers do is they know they have a lot of ability. And if they got all this ability, they might as well use it. So when they're up against a battle, they're like, God, let's, you know, you can be my co-pilot in this whole deal. And we're going we're gonna to win this. You know, I'll call the shots. I'll shoot it, whatever. But we're going to work at this thing together. And what God says is that's not going to work. God says, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I want you to like get out and just totally get in the back of the plane. And I'm going to fly this thing and trust me. And so what we have to do is we just keep giving it to God. So what I do is I worry about something. When I'm up against a fight like this thing, First Baptist Boston here and them wanting to throw us out all the time and not know, you know, I worried about it. Late awake at night. And the only way to get through it is I just had to keep saying to God, God, it's yours. I don't know what's going to turn out, but I'm just going to give it to you. I'm going to stop worrying about it. Instead, I'm going to pray. And this is why Paul says, worry about nothing, pray about everything. It's the only way we give the battle to God, in my opinion, effectively. And we do that over and over again. God, I want a house, so I'm going to give it to you instead of worry. God, I want a spouse, I'm going to give it to you. God, I need this, that, X, Y, Z. I'm fighting this battle. I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going to do it over and over again. And I have, sometimes I feel, I know you probably feel this way too. I, sometimes I can't pray about it anymore. I am so worn out about it. Good. Then you're in the right place. You've, 
we have to get to that place where we're absolutely worn out about something. When we know, we just, over and over, then we know that we're finally giving that completely to God. Don't stop giving it over and over and over again to God. It's the thing that we're called to do. Last thing I want to point out about this section, which I like so much, I want you to think with me for a second. So we're told what the setting looked like, like the geography of the situation. You have the Philistine army on a hill over here. And Goliath stands in front of them and he makes all these defiance you know, comments to Israel and, and the God of Israel, right? You have the Israeli army over here. So on the day of the big battle, you've got David running down here, this little creek bed in between, and that's probably where he got his five smooth stones and his little slingshot from and all this kind of stuff, right? And you've got Goliath coming down here. You've got a couple thousand men, maybe as much as 100,000 men standing up on the hillside. Now, I want you all to remember back, okay, for you guys to when you were teenagers, would you, would you ever like to be embarrassed in, a, in front of a bunch of other guys? I mean, is that a cool thing? Or is that something that you just... I mean, when you put a, when you put a guy in front of a bunch of other men and he is like completely embarrassed, it is it's like worse than death. And here you've got David in an incredibly tight situation here. He's getting ready to face off against this huge giant in his life. And he's standing in front of thousands of men. And he's got his dumb brother back there, right, who just lashed him, you know, with his tongue. And all those thoughts. But you know what? As you read through this, what gets me is he doesn't seem to be worried about that at all. You know, if you think about the scene, here you've got, here you've got Goliath, man. And he's, he's nine feet tall. And he's this hardened rugged warriors get big booming voice that just booms across you know david come here and i'll feed your flesh to the birds right it's booming it's impressive it's scary people were afraid of this guy it says every time he would make his his uh, he would cry out to the israelite soldiers and when he would make his challenges they would run from him it says it in the text they would just run from him. the booming voice and then here's david everybody david he's a teenager he's got that teenage squeaky voice little five foot six guy running with a slingshot with a little squeaky voice the battle is the lord's the battle is the lord's it's not very impressive <laughs> it's almost embarrassing Right? It's almost embarrassing. But what strikes me in this story is he's not embarrassed. And that's weird to me. He's not worried about how he looks in anybody else's eyes. He doesn't care about his brother at the moment. He doesn't care about all the soldiers. He doesn't care about Goliath. There's only one thing he cares about, and that is how he looks in the eyes of God. That's a hard place to get to. Very hard place to get to. When I talk to people a lot of times about houses and spouses and stuff like that, you know what comes out a lot of times in the conversation? The heartache, the pain, and the tears about the houses and the spouses? You know what comes out? It's embarrassment. Embarrassed about how I look to somebody else. Embarrassed about, you know, my parents who keep asking, are you ever going to get a house? When do you think you'll finally have a house? Embarrassed about the brother who's got the house or the sister who's got the house. Or the friends from college who all got these big, beautiful houses, and there you are. You don't have a house. What is wrong with you? How about this one? You see Aunt so-and-so, and she says to you at Thanksgiving, Are you still single? Are you still, are you still single? Really? Are you still single? Don't you love Aunt so-and-so? 
Isn't she got the gift of encouragement? Isn't that beautiful? And it's embarrassing. It hurts. How about this? Somebody, somebody comes up to you and says, you don't have kids yet? You know how many women are walking around and their hearts are just... Like, I, I know a pastor's wife. She can't go, she can't go to church on Mother's Day because her heart is broken. She doesn't have a child. You didn't get a job promotion yet? Well, your sister got a job promotion. What's wrong with you? And so what hits us is that we're just incredibly embarrassed. And what strikes me about David is he had got himself to a place where the only thing that mattered to him was God. That's a beautiful place to get to. People, you, people say stuff to me you would not believe all, all the time. I have people say to me that all the time. They say, John, when do you think you're going to pastor a real church? What do you mean? When are you going to pastor a real church? Well, what do you mean real church? Well, I, a church that has a building. I mean, when are you going to stop doing this thing that you're doing and pastor a real church? Or people say, where does your church, where, where's your church meet? I said, well, we, we, Thomas Jefferson Middle School. And they say, oh, all right. Lunch. One day, God is going to help you out and you're going to get a building. Now, listen, everybody. I've said this before. I'll say it again. The glory days of the Christian church were the first 300 years. Anybody who's an expert in church history knows that. And you know what? They did not have the first 300 years. There was no buildings. But it looks like status. So we feel like we have to have it. So it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. I feel like I've got to have a, I've got to have a building. I've got to have a building. Or I've got to have this. Or I've got to have that. We have got to get ourselves to a place. It's a beautiful thing to get to. Very difficult. And I'm telling you right now, now I'm not, I'm not there. I'm just, I just talk about these things. I don't actually do them. Okay. Um, <laughs> to reach the place. To go to God and say, God, I'd love to be at the place where David is. There's, 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 an, there's an old saying that says, married couples say this all the time. Well, husbands say this to other husbands. Unless mama's happy, nobody's happy. Anybody ever heard that saying before? Okay, a lot of truth to that statement, uh, I'm afraid. Anyway, uh, unless God is happy, unless we are concerned, not about the army, not about the aunt, not about the uncle or the brother, who is maybe looking down their nose at us and saying, why don't you have this or that? Until we get to the place where all we care about is the battle, is God's, and it's all for His glory. Until we, we will just churn. We'll just churn inside fighting our Goliaths. God wants us to get to that place. He wants us to see things the way He sees things. He wants us to be able to give the battle over to Him over and over again. So how does our story end here? We've been through so much in this facility. It's absolutely incredible all the ups and downs that we've been through here. And we've got this people that we've had saying, tried and true people who said just a handful, I think maybe God wants you to stay here. I think God has something for you. And then we've just had nothing but just all kinds of craziness. So I've told you they've gone through all kinds of regime changes at this place. And the, the people who are in charge now are North Star Church now. It's an association of churches is all. And they are now the owners of this property. And so about nine months ago, I met with them and just, you know, we're talking about the property and talking about space and what's going to happen. And, uh, 
the gentleman who's in charge of it said, why don't you send us a letter and just tell us your thoughts, your you know, feelings, something like that. So we did, and we didn't hear anything for like three months. And they called him and says, hey, we'd like to meet with you about that. So I walked into the meeting. I was sitting right in an office right back over there. And after 11 years of a nightmare feeling like the unwanted stepchild in the basement, he looks at me and says, we want you uh, to make this your home. We want you to feel totally at home at this facility. And we're going to, when we make decisions, what we're going to do, we're coming to you first. You are now calling the shots on this facility. I said, I can't believe this. From everything we've come through, here's what I want you to know. Look, it's against all odds. That was again, I never would have expected that to happen. You might not ever expect to happen what God has planned for you. But I want you to know that God's working hard on your behalf. Be encouraged by that. I wish tonight that I could poof, make a house for you, you know, and you'd have your house. It'd be really cool if I could make spouses. I'd have a ton of money if I could do that. I'd just make a spouse, right? Or make your answer to prayer come true, that big break you're looking for, or whatever is hurting your heart, whatever it is where your life is. I can't do that. What we can do is pray for you, and we really want to do that. Really, really want to do that. I want to encourage you to consider not just walking out tonight if you're in the midst of a battle with a Goliath, whether that Goliath is big or small, okay? Consider coming up here to this little altar and allowing the prayer team to pray with you. We can't make a miracle for you all of a sudden, but we can put an arm around you, we can tell you we love you, and we can stand with you. And we need each other in the midst of our battles because they're lonely and they're scary. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for every single person in this room. I want to thank you, God, that even though we can't see it all the time or even much of the time, God, you are working so hard on our behalf because you love us so much and you have great plans in store for us. And Lord, I want to pray that you would encourage every single person here tonight. You'd strengthen them in the battle. You'd help them to see what you're doing and to have an ear to hear from you. Bless each person, Father, according to your will. In Christ's name, amen.